This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is Intelligence Matters, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Marty Peterson is the former executive director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the agency's third highest ranking position. He was a career analyst, a leader of analysts, and a China expert. As part of our spy story series, Marty and I just sat down to talk about the CIA's analytic work on the 1989 Tiananmen Square crisis in China. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters Declassified. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Marty, welcome to Intelligence Matters. I can't, I can't overstate how nice it is to have you on the show. Michael, thank you for very, very much for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored, truly. So, Marty, as you know, we're going to talk about how CIA analysts approached the Tiananmen crisis in China in 1989. But before we do that, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your career. So I'd love, I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you ended up at CIA, how you ended up as an analyst, and how you ended up spending a, a chunk of your time working on East Asia and China. Well, there is a story, he said. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but with a point, actually, too, Michael, it really starts with a couple of happy accidents. Um, I was in uh, college, junior year, working my way through school. I needed an upper division political science course uh, that started at 7.30 in the morning so I could make my job by noon, okay? And uh, the only course they were offering was something called uh, Governments of Communist Asia. So I took it. And uh, I loved the course. I loved the professor who became a mentor of mine. 
And I proceeded to take all the other Asian courses I could get, history, art, and that sort of thing. So by the time I was graduating, I decided I wasn't going to go to law school. I was going to become an Asian expert. I got a grant to go to the East West Center in Honolulu. This is in uh, 1968. And about a year later, 1969, I was drafted. And uh, I did uh, two years in the Army, a year in Vietnam as a NCO in the infantry. And uh, when I got back on campus in 1971, uh, well, it was hate the war, hate the soldier. And I really couldn't stand being there. Knew I couldn't be a college professor. So I went around looking for another job. Took the State Department exam, passed that. And a friend of mine who had been in Air Force Intelligence in, uh, in uh, Thailand came up and said, hey, Marty, there's these other guys you need to talk to. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, it's the CIA. They've got this one-page little form. You mail it in. And uh, if they like what they see, they'll give you a call and talk to you. And I said, okay, great. So I mailed it in. And sure enough, about three weeks later, I get a phone call, Michael. And the, my, and the phone call goes exactly like this. Hi, I'm Ed. Got your form. Like to talk to you. You want to talk to me, you be at this place at this day at this time. Got it? Got it. Click. Okay. So I show up at the appointed time and place, and it turns out to be a rickety old building down in the Honolulu Harbor area. And I go up to the room, and I knock on the door, and I hear this voice is saying, come in. And I open the door, and Michael, there's nothing in the room. There's nothing in the room but a card table, two folding chairs, and a guy I presume to be Ed. Okay. And so, and so I sit down and we start chatting. I keep waiting for him to tell me about the job. And after about half hour, he's basically talking about my experiences in Vietnam and grad work. And says, well, I've heard enough. And he reaches into his, his briefcase and pulls out the old paper application. I don't know. Maybe you saw it too. Like 33 yeah, yeah, pages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 33 pages. Thumps it on the table and says, uh, fill it out if you've got the guts and mail it. <laughs> And uh, by the way, don't call us, we'll call you. And I kind of stumble out of the room going, I don't know how to call you. Okay, <laughs> So I graduate, I go back to Phoenix, Arizona. And in March, I get this phone call. And this phone call goes like this. Hello, this is the Department of the Army. Do you know who this is? I'm going, <laughs> I'm going, yeah, I think I think so. I didn't apply to the Department of the Army. And said, well, look, we'd like you to come to Washington for a week of interviews. And I said, great, we'll set it up. Now, you know, I'm working a, a minimum wage job. Uh, I'm married to Irene. Uh, I've got no money and I know I need a suit. So I'm going to tell you something now and I want you to be very, very kind to me when you picture this, Michael. Okay, because it's okay, 1970, okay. 72, if you've seen the TV shows. I go out and buy an electric blue suit with bell-bottom <laughs> pants, a paisley <laughs> shirt and a purple tie. Okay. <laughs> You're not being kind, Michael. Okay. <laughs> I, fly, I fly into to D.C. with 20 bucks and a MasterCard to last a week. I go to the motel where they told us to stay, show up uh, for the first appointment uh, the next day, go to the receptionist, and she looks me up and down with a gimlet eye. And, uh, and she says, young man, exactly how much money do you have in your pocket? I said, well, I got, I, I got a $20 bill and a MasterCard to last a week. She's saying, okay, uh, uh, 
before you leave today, you come back here and you see me. You don't go anywhere. You see me. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I've been here five minutes. I failed the means test. Okay. So I come back at the end of the day and she holds up this blue ticket. And she says, you see this blue ticket? And I said, yes. She says, I want you to go down and stand on the street corner. And I want you to get on a blue bus. The blue bus will say blue bird. You are to get on, you are to get on no other bus and you do what the driver tells you. And I said, okay. So I'm down there. There's a half a dozen people. They all get on the bus. They seem to have chains and badges. I hold up the blue ticket. The driver says, get on the bus, sit behind me. And we take off. And you know where we go? We go to CIA headquarters. Wow. Okay. So, so everybody gets off the bus. I look at the driver. What do I do? He says, go on in. And uh, uh, the guard will stop you. He'll tell you what to do. So I go in. The guard tells me to sit down. About five minutes later, a lady comes around the corner. Uh, she takes me to her office. She says, do you have your plane ticket? I give her a plane ticket. She opens a cash drawer, Michael. <laughs> and she pays me for the plane ticket. And she pays me six days per diem. Now, when I, when I flew in, they told me that they would pay for it, but it'd take a couple of months. And I left there thinking, they don't even know they're going to hire me but they're making sure that I've got enough money to get through the week. This is the kind of place I want to work. Point one, the image in fiction and movies is that it's a pretty cynical, hard, uncaring place. And you know, and I know that that's simply not the truth. They look after their people. They were looking after me before they even hired me. And we look after the people who work for us in the field. The second point out of this story is, um, the hiring process has changed a lot and for the better, it's much more open now. But I think most critically, at least from where I stand, uh, it's more diverse, it's more inclusive. And I think if you're going to have a secret intelligence organization, it's got to look like America and it's got to reflect the values of the country. And so uh, that's, that's how I ended up there. Uh, I worked in Asia for... Uh, 20 some years before I ended up as uh, ADDI, Associate Deputy Director for Intelligence, and then uh, First Human Resources Officer, and then Deputy Executive Director and Executive Director. I think, Marty, that that is the best answer to the question how did you end up at CIA that we have ever heard here on Intelligence Matters? <laughs> so we're going we're, we're gonna to get to Tiananmen, but I do want to embarrass you for just one second. I do want to tell my listeners that I was extraordinarily lucky that your career went the way it did because you were the most important mentor that I ever had, or the second most important mentor if Tom Elmore is listening. And for my <laughs> listeners, and for my listeners, that's an inside joke. But seriously, Marty, seriously, Marty, I learned as much from you about analysis and about management and leadership as I did from anybody else. And I just want everybody to know that. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Okay. So let's chat about Tiananmen. Um, where mm-hmm. were you? Where were you on the 15th of April, 1989, when the crisis began? It was actually my first day on the job as deputy director of the Office of East Asian Analysis. I, uh, I had spent four years previous as chief of the China division. And uh, a year before Tiananmen, the deputy director for intelligence asked me to spend a year at the office of uh, 
training and education, looking at analytic training programs and seeing if I couldn't come up with some ways to make that training more effective. So I had just completed that assignment. I showed up on the 15th and uh, it all started. So before we get into to what the agency actually did, what the work of the analysts uh, was, I'd love to have you kind of summarize what happened in China between the 15th of April and June 1989. Okay. Um, a couple of points of context just to kind of kick this off because they're, they're important. Um, the first is that Deng Xiaoping kicked off his reform program in December 1978, actually 10 years before this. And two of his key allies were Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyong. Now, there was a lot of opposition to Deng, but Deng prevailed. And his reforms were basically focusing on opening up the economic system. But there was a lot of pressure as well to relax political controls. And Hu Yaobang is pretty sympathetic to that, but Deng isn't. And certainly the party elders aren't. And eventually there's a falling out between Deng and Hu, and Hu's ousted from power in January 1978. Okay, fast forward, spring 1989. Deng's reforms are, are paying off, but they're very clear winners and losers, okay? There's also a lot of corruption, inflation, nepotism, um, and a lot of resentment, okay? At the same time, it's important to remember that communism is collapsing in Eastern Europe. Uh, and the Russians are in, in retreat. So for the PRC leadership, this is a pretty frightening time. Their world is kind of shaking. So who dies on the 15th? And there's a spontaneous outpouring of sympathy, particularly from students. And they begin to gather not only in Beijing, but in other cities all across China. And it's important to remember that these children are the children of the elite. They're the sons and daughters of, of party officials, government officials, military officials. You just didn't get into those universities unless you had those kinds of connections. And students being students, after a couple of days, they began to drop a list of demands. And among the demands are more freedom of the press, an investigation of corruption, which is basically an investigation into the families of senior leaders, uh, higher pay for intellectuals, and they also demand to see the premier, Li Peng who is an elder and a hardliner. Now, the party is getting pretty concerned. Students are refusing to leave the square. They're starting to organize, and the leadership is divided. Zhao it wants to push a softer line. Li Peng, a hard one. And Zhao, at this point, is, is in what position? He is uh, Secretary General of the party. Okay, good. And... Um, in the back of everybody's mind, uh, Michael, is memories of the Red Guards rampaging during the Cultural Revolution, students being very frightening, okay? So the hardliners prevail, and on April 26th, they put an editorial in People's Daily that says that the students in the square are basically engaging in anti-party activities, which, of course, only fires up the students. And the day after, on the 27, something like 50,000 to 100,000 people marched through the square in support of the students. Party's frightened, backs off, tones down the rhetoric, even admits that some of the gripes from the students are legit. And things de-escalate a bit. Some of the students actually leave the square. But there's kind of a hard core of student leaders who press for more confrontational tactics. And on May 13th, they start the hunger strike. 
and that really galvanizes popular support for the students. In fact, four days later, about a million people from all walks of life in Beijing start to parade and demonstrate peacefully in Beijing. This seems to have been the final straw for Deng. Uh, Zhao's criticized at a series of meetings, and on 17 May, Deng makes the case to impose martial law. Zhao goes into the square on the 19th, pleads with the students to end the hunger strike and leave, has absolutely no impact other than to further anger Deng. Martial law is declared on the 20th. Some troops actually start to move into the city, but this is where you get the protesters pushing back and you get that great photograph of that young man standing in front of the tank and moving. Yeah, the, t- the tank man, yeah. Man, the tank man. So the troops go back to the barracks and the leadership drops out of sight. And there's a series of very tense meetings in late May and early June. Zhao and the moderates are ultimately removed from office. Dung, the elders in the military, make the decision to use force. They give the order on the 3rd of June. Troops move in about 10 o'clock, and the killing starts. And even to this day, there's no accurate figure for the casualties. Uh, They range from a few hundred, which was the regime's official position, to several thousand, but we just don't know. Wow, that's quite a story, Marty. That sets up perfectly how the how the agency saw all of this at the time. So kind of first question, how did we assess Chinese politics and Chinese stability in the run-up to Hugh's death? I think we had a pretty good understanding of the dynamics, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, Deng was clearly the key decision maker, but there were other power centers, party elders. Matter of fact, the military was not entirely on board with all of Deng's programs. And again, this was a frightening time. Eastern Europe was coming apart. Uh, Deng was changing a system that most party and government guys were not only comfortable with, but actually been giving their lives to. They were revolutionaries and they were creating winners and new losers. And there were just a lot of people that didn't understand what was going on and were lost. I know I was, <laughs> I was part of this delegation uh, that met with a party committee at one of the large iron and steel uh, factories in China. And uh, we were talking about Deng's program and how they were implementing and that sort of thing. At the end of it, the head of our delegation turned to the party committee and said, uh, uh, well, you know, we've got these experts from Washington. They've been asking you questions. Would you like to ask them anything? And they all huddled for a moment. And then they came back and said, uh, uh, yeah, uh, how do you make a profit? And I'm, going, <laughs> and I'm going, oh boy, has Dung got his hands full here? Yeah. Yeah. So what was, what was our early assessment of the protests? How did we see them? Did we, did we correctly identify that they could get out of hand? Yes. Yes, we did. And, and uh, one of the things that I think uh, we knew from the beginning was that uh, if this thing persists, uh, it's going to end badly. I, I think there was a chance maybe to diffuse things a little bit on, on uh, April 26th, uh, but that People's Daily Editorial, the fact that Zhao and his reformer allies were on the defensive and that hunger strike, I think pretty much destroyed any chance of a, a peaceful ending. At a minimum, we thought there would be mass arrests and that the leadership uh, would use force 
if pushed. And there was a lot of press in China at this time too, Michael. The other thing that was going on is that Gorbachev was about to visit. Um, this was the first Sino-Soviet summit since the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And the press were all over the, the, the square. They were talking to the students. They were impressed by the students. And they had this Eastern European frame of mind or frame of reference uh, that maybe China was going to go down as well. Uh, and they were a lot more upbeat about a possible happy ending than, than we ever were. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to be right back with more of a discussion with Marty Peterson. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Marty, you, you talked about how this was, this was not only the party against the protesters, but it was also different factions in the party against each other. You mentioned that a couple of times. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I'm wondering if we, if we saw those rifts inside the party in real time or whether it, it took some time for us to see them. No, I think, I think we, we saw them actually very early on, Michael. And, and I go back all the way to a paper that we did in, uh, in 1978 when Dung's reforms were first starting. And we looked at the, the program that he was proposing and uh, uh, we look at the challenges it faced, but also the likely impact on the system. And I remember writing a brief introduction to the paper saying that basically if Dung's reforms take hold, and it was a big, big if because we weren't sure, this was going to be the most significant change in China since the fall of the Qing dynasty. Oh, how can you say that? Uh, you know, there's a 1911 revolution, there's a 49 revolution. I said, look, you're going to get new winners, new losers new voices, new stakeholders, and the party is really going to have a hard time maintaining control of this reform process. Uh, particularly, there's going to be demands for political change as well as economic change. And in 83, we did this paper on Hu Yaobang, looking at his style and his politics and his strengths and weaknesses. And one of the things that we said in that is that his chances of succeeding Deng really hinge on two things. One, staying on the good side of Dung and outliving the elders. And neither of those happened. And then when Hu fell in 87, we did another paper that looked at the leadership dynamic. I think the challenges that we identified in those papers, what, 40 years ago, actually are still valid today. The party's dilemma is this. We have a monopoly on power. How do we hold off pressures for political reform, such as we're seeing out of Hong Kong? Marxist-Leninist ideology doesn't cut it anymore. So our legitimacy, our monopoly comes down to two things, building the economy, economic prosperity, and protecting China's global interests. And I think the aggressiveness you see in Beijing are both economic issues and its role internationally economically, and what it's doing militarily and foreign policy are both a reflection that that's what the, uh, 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 their power rests on. So Marty, when the, when the lines were drawn inside the party, was there any doubt about who would end up on top? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. We we felt that the the key um, was 
Deng's ability to make sure that the military was on board. Okay. And um, uh, there were a lot of people in the party, the elders in particular, uh, that were, like I say, unhappy with where Deng wanted to go. The military too, because Deng told the military early on, you're not going to benefit from these economic reforms for the first 10 years. We're going to build the economy and then we're going to build the military after that. And plus you had all the officials that still had ties to the Gang of Four and the leftists and all those Red Guards in the, in the countryside that, that weren't coming back. Um, there were a lot of people that wanted to go back to the 1950s, a lot of people that didn't want to go into the 1980s and 1990s. So, Marty, it's great to kind of walk through how we saw all this, and I think it gives our listeners a sense of what analysts at CIA actually do. This might be kind of a hard question, but do you, do you think there's any lessons from how the agency looked at China in the years leading up to Tiananmen and then how you handled the Tiananmen crisis for analysts today? I think there is, Michael. Um, You know, we deal with these kinds of events as analysts all the time. It's unclear um, where we're going in many of these instances because the information is contradictory or it's wrong, or it's incomplete. And I think when we look at where analysis goes wrong, I think it's, it's generally because of one of three things happen. Um, and they're lessons for today. One, we don't have a, one is that we don't have a very good understanding of the organization that we're trying to analyze. Or two, we don't understand the individuals in that organization who are making the decisions. Or three, we don't understand our own analysis. And I think there's some very simple questions. What do that, you mean by that uh, third one? I'm, I'm going to give okay, it. Okay, sorry. I'll sorry, 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 No, no, no. Because no, no. <laughs> i got to kind of walk you up to it. Okay. okay, um, okay. Um, there's a real simple set of questions that I think intelligence officers, officers in collection and policymakers need to maul continuously or they're going to miss something significant. With the organizations, the three questions are pretty simple. How do you get to the top? What's the preferred method of exercising power and making decisions? And what are the acceptable and unacceptable uses of power? If you don't have a feel for how the system works and what the answers are to those questions, then you have no idea how the game is played. With individuals, I think it's important that you understand how they assess the situation, how they see their options, what their tolerance for risk is, and what they believe about U.S. intentions, capabilities, and will. And in particular, what's their definition of an acceptable outcome? Unless you understand those ideas or or understand how they see those things, then you have no idea how your policy initiatives are going to have an impact on them. Now, to get to your question, we don't understand our own analysis. I believe strongly that one of the worst questions you can ask an analyst is, how confident are you? Because they're good analysts. They look at the information. They weigh the data. They say, I've caveated things. I'm pretty confident. I think the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, where am I most vulnerable to error? Might not be wrong, but where am I on the weakest ground? If you're asking that one, you come out in a very different place than you ask if I'm confident. The other thing 
that you need to ask yourself periodically is, what am I not seeing that I should be seeing if my line of analysis is correct? And lastly, Michael, this is the big one. I think this is at the root of more intelligence failures than anything else. If you ever find yourself thinking or saying out loud the following, the hair needs to stand up on the back of your neck. It makes no sense for them to do that, which is a pretty good indication that you don't understand the organization you're trying to analyze or the people that are running it. And I think those are the lessons that I would take away from looking at a 10 on men, uh, a rock WMD, or any a number of these other instances that we've had to deal with. That's great, Marty. And I think everybody now sees why you were my mentor. Um, so Marty, <laughs> so, 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 so just a couple more questions about sure. Tiananmen. The first is, I think it was 12 years after Tiananmen in 2001 that secret party documents about the crisis were smuggled out of China and published. And I was wondering, you know, I'm sure you read those. Were those consistent with our analysis or did they change the way that we looked back on it? Do you think? Um, I think they were pretty, pretty consistent, Michael. I have to tell you at that point, uh, by 2001, I was, I think, chief human resources officer. So I was out of the analysis business and out of the China business uh, specifically. But I don't think there was anything that came out in those documents that really uh, 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 surprised us. I think we were, we had a pretty good grip on it. Okay. And then um, George H.W. Bush was the president at the time. Yes. Right. And we were, you know, he was a great consumer of intelligence. He, he, he actually got his PDB every day. He read it. He saw a briefer. He, he asked a lot of questions. Right. So what was he looking for, do you think, from our analysis? Well, he was a pretty, as you said, a very, very sophisticated consumer of intelligence, especially on China. Remember, you know, he had been ambassador to China. He'd been ambassador to the UN. Uh, he'd been director of central intelligence. And I think as events began to unfold, the initial focus of the administration was a lot like the press at that point. Were we seeing in, in Tiananmen a reflection of what we were seeing in Eastern Europe? Uh, was this going to lead to the a collapse somehow? And I think we quickly convinced uh, uh, the administration that that was unlikely. And we raised early on that there was a prospect that if this did not end quickly, this is a regime that was prepared to use force. And, and President Bush in particular and the people around him uh, listened, uh, were convinced. And then their focus changed really to the safety of Americans in China and particularly the safety of Americans in Beijing. I remember at uh, uh, some point in the crisis, probably late May, maybe after the leadership kind of dropped out of sight with those meetings around the 20th May, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence asked for a briefing. And so uh, I went down to do it, along with the head of our, our China unit and, uh, and a State Department officer from the China desk. And when we got down there, we found out the SC, SSCI uh, had invited any senator that wanted to sit in on the briefing. And so we had literally two-thirds of the Senate there. And uh, I laid out our, our, our take on the situation, including the possibility it could end uh, badly with the use of force. Senators asked us a few questions, and they turned to this poor state officer. And uh, they wanted to know what State Department was doing to uh, uh, 
prevent the Chinese from using force? Where were all the Americans in China? Uh, how many were in the square? I mean, they just shredded this poor fellow. And um, it drove home to me something that our mentor, Tom, once told me, Michael. And he said, Marty, you know what the difference is between CIA and everyone else? I said, no, Tom, what's the difference between us and them? And he says, well, we deal with the world as it is. And everyone else in Washington is trying to change that world. And I think this in no small measure accounts for the occasional disconnect that we see between the intelligence community and the policy agencies including the White House, and that's every White House. Sooner or later, someone says, you're not really helping us, you really need to get on the team or whatever. And I do think a major part of being an intelligence analyst is helping these policy communities understand how they can steer events. And I don't think it's enough to tell them what's going on or why or even what it means, although that's important. Where they really need help is telling them what factors are the most important and whether there are any levers out there that they can pull or push to kind of guide events in a direction favorable to U.S. policy without being policy prescriptive. I think we do a very good job of what's going on and why it's going on and what it means, but we don't do a very good job of uh, helping them think through what options they may have. Yeah. Okay. Last question, Marty, on Tiananmen. From a, from a sort of big picture perspective, how did the crisis change China? What was the long-term impact of what happened? Well, personally, I doubt there was ever a, a Prague spring in China's future. But I think Tiananmen put finis to any significant loosening of that political system, especially as it related to the party's monopoly on power and its control over messaging. Certainly, the current leadership is not inclined to move in that direction. It's a leadership of arrogance and hubris and, and insecurity. Uh, I think the response to the demonstrations in Hong Kong is the latest indication that they're not going to tolerate um, any challenge, whatever its form, or entertain any real loosening of control. So um, maybe there'll be a loosening some point down the way, but uh, I think Tiananmen froze political change, uh, at least till today. Okay, Marty, that was fantastic on Tiananmen. I want to ask you just one more thing. And I want people to know that that you were the father of the way we train analysts at CIA, something called the Sherman Kent School, which is the agency's school for training analysts, and something called the Career Analyst Program, which is the initial training that all analysts go through, would not exist today if it wasn't for you. And I know that during your time at the agency that you would meet on the very first day with every new career analyst program class and that you would share with them what you thought the most important things that they needed to know at that moment of their career. And I would love if you could share with us what you told them. Okay, Michael, I've, I've, I've given that short speech, I think over a hundred times, uh, the first time actually in May 2000. And you're right. I, I, I do believe that it, it captures what I believe about the agency and, and the director of intelligence and what we ought to be all about. So imagine both you, Michael, and our listeners uh, that you've 
entered on duty at the CIA. You've been through all the uh, uh, first weeks of orientation and whatnot, and now you're going to begin your your training as as analysts. And it's a uh, it's day one, hour one, and I meet you. I meet you in uh, the lobby of the CIA. You've seen it in a million movies. There's about twenty five or thirty of you. Uh, you're standing on the seal with your back to the doors and you're facing the atrium. I walk in, I introduce myself, and I say, welcome. I want to take a few minutes to tell you why you're standing where you are and why your education and intelligence starts here. Look to your left. That's a statue of General Donovan, to whom we trace our modern roots, and the star on the wall represents all the men of the OSS who gave their lives in service to the nation. The book beneath that star lists their names. Now look to the right. There are over 80 stars on that wall, more than one for every year of our existence. And those stars commemorate the men and women of this agency who gave their lives in service to our nation. There are analysts on that wall, And those men and women walked through the same doors you just walked through and strode across the seal on which you now stand. Now, there are many, many markers in many, many buildings in Washington commemorating many, many good men and women. But this building, this organization is different. We labor in the shadows. And even in death, many of our colleagues remain unknown, not only to the public, but to all save their families, and a few fellow officers. Your class starts in this place because you are a link to all those who have come before and all who will come after. The Career Analyst Program is more about mission, values, and culture than it is about skills. It's about why we exist and the standards we hold ourselves to and that you will be expected to hold yourself to. You've joined a very select group of men and women. and the weeks ahead, you will come to appreciate how unique that group is. At that point, Michael, I hold up a copy of the president's daily brief. This is what the building is all about. It does not look like much. The first few times you read it, you may not be impressed. It looks simple, and it is, if we do it right. But everything here, the case officers in the field, the analysts at the desk, the support people, the clerical people, the collection gadgets, are all geared to produce this slim document six days a week, 52 weeks a year, for the most important and powerful person in the world and for a handful of close advisors. The DI mission, your mission, is to make the complex intelligible, not simple, intelligible, to make our guy smarter than their guy, whether it's across a mahogany conference table or across a battlefield. And you're going to do that by explaining in this document and others the forces that work on this issue, the other fellow's perspective, and the risks and opportunities in it for the United States. Now, one of the people I I worked with when I started used to say that if he could do anything for a new intelligence officer, it would be to take them to Nevada, see an A-bomb test. Well, not me. I take you to Honolulu, where I went to grad school. We get lunch at a little seaside cafe, I know. And while you're munching your teriyaki burger, I'd have you face the water. And I tell you to look to your right at that notch in the mountains. That's Coley Coley Pass. 
And on December 7th, 1941, Japanese Zeros streamed through that pass, passed in front of where you are now, and attacked Ford Island on your left, where the Arizona Memorial now sits, and which to this day gives up pieces of, marine, of sailors and Marines still trapped inside. And I would tell you that that is what happens to a nation that has all the pieces of the puzzle, but does not have a record of intelligence to put them together. Now, sadly, sadly, after September 11th, I'd have to take you to another island, to Ground Zero at the tip of Manhattan, for a different lesson. Someday, God forbid, your very best may not be good enough. And if that happens, you have to steal yourself, critique your performance, draw the right lessons, rededicate yourself to the mission, even as the waves of criticism, the merited and unmerited break over you. We do not have the option of quitting our post or walking away or answering back. We serve in silence. Now, I believe that there are those in the world who would do us harm, take our liberty, our livelihood, imperil our children and our families. We are on guard, all of us, as much as the cop on the beat or the soldier at his post. Only we stand it in the dark places in the world, places where the United States does not want to be seen, where people of the United States does not want to be seen with hold power. The Central Intelligence Agency is the eyes and ears of the nation, and the Director of Intelligence is the voice of the CIA. I believe knowledge is power that good policy is rooted in superior knowledge. I believe that this agency is often the critical source of that knowledge. And I also believe that the United States is a force for good in the world. But how effective we are depends as much on our knowledge as it does on our raw power and intentions. What we do, what you will be expected to do, is terribly difficult and terribly important. That was true in 1766, when Washington wrote that there's nothing more necessary than good intelligence to frustrate a designing enemy, and nothing requires greater pains to obtain. And it is, if anything, truer today, because the enemies are more designing, to use Washington's term, and even more powerful. When we get it wrong, American lives can be lost. If we are right, but ineffective in getting our message across, the consequences can be the same as getting it wrong. Now, the language of business is much in vogue, but we're not a business. We're a profession, a profession that you now join, a profession with its own ethics and standards. Part of it is DI tradecraft, about which you'll hear much and learn much, but it's more than that. We are a secret intelligence organization in a democracy. And we often work the gray areas, an organization chartered by our government to break the laws of other governments. And this puts a heavy obligation on us to be honest and ethical in all our dealings with one another, with the consumers of our services, and with the people of the United States. DI culture emphasizes respect for ideas and people and for expertise at all levels in all the professions represented in our directorate. And all of us have a shared responsibility in maintaining DI tradecraft and standards. The demands on us are great. Ours can be long. Flexibility is essential to success here. And there's a sense of service and sacrifice and patriotism, although it's not talked about much. 
There will be late dinners and missed events in the course of your career. There will be times when it's going to be hard to read a newspaper or watch the news, perhaps because what they have to say is incorrect, sometimes because what they have to say is too true. These things will take a toll on you and on your family. But there are rewards too, and none greater than the knowledge that what you do matters. The work is important. You will make a difference. I've seen it time and time again over the course of my career. Time and time again, the men and women in this building have pointed the way. And in so doing, it made the world a little better, a little safer. So, as you go through your career, I hope you recall standing in this room on this day. I hope you come to appreciate the spirit of service and sacrifice and patriotism that imbues this antechamber and is exercised in the belief captured on the wall behind you that one pillar of our democracy is a commitment to truth. Take a moment, look around with new eyes. That's it, Michael. Marty, um, I, I just have two things to say. One is, one is I have tears in my eyes at this moment. Um, and two, it's now obvious not only why you were my mentor, but why you rose to be the number three at the Central Intelligence Agency. Marty, thank you so much for joining us today to tell us the Tiananmen story and to, to share that uh, inspirational speech that you gave so many times. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. That was Marty Peterson. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.